If you've been with us, we've been doing this series called Our Journey to Jesus. And I told you, don't get confused, because Wednesday is our journey with Jesus. That is a discipleship program. We are taking some classic Old Testament stories from the book of Genesis, namely, and we're doing them two parts. We're looking at them from the Old Testament story narrative, which Pastor Mel spoke to us last time about sin and the devastating consequences of sin. But today we're going to look at the second half of that story, and we're going to call today's lesson, But Jesus, But Jesus, from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. If you have your Bibles, join us there. We'll get there here in a moment. But did you ever get a good upgrade of something? If you ever buy a new car or something like that, you got an upgrade of your old car or a new couch. We did it about a year ago. We got a new couch, and we put our old couch downstairs because... We now had a new couch, and that was an upgrade. Did you ever have a good upgrade of something? Well, I'm going to give you my top 10 best upgrades as it pertains to Pastor Todd, okay? Top 10 best upgrades, and there is a point to this. Okay, here's some upgrades that I think are, number, are, uh, are wonderful. And here's number 10, fall, okay? Now, we have been calling fall fall since September, but it hasn't really felt like fall till kind of right now. So I'm actually going to call number 10 real fall, okay? My, my family does not count fall until the weather arrives in the 50s and 60s. We've been having a lot of 70s, near 80s. That is not fall. I want you to know that, okay? But real fall is here, and that is an upgrade from both summer and fake fall. So number 10 is my favorite season, fall. I love fall. I love this time of year. I love the colors. I love the coolness. I love wearing sweaters, which some of us are in today, right? We could finally break the sweaters out and not feel too bad about it. That's number 10. Here's number nine, best upgrade. Now, some of you, you're going to think this is the opposite, okay? Hold up your phones right now. Hold. Let, let's see them. Let's see what kind of phones you got. Also, here's, here's a good little plug. Silence those bad boys, okay? I don't usually say that, but as you're doing that, make sure they're silenced. Okay, now most of you have iPhones. I see a couple pretty cool Android phones. What do you got back there, Luke? iPhone, okay, that looked like a Game Boy or something. Maybe you're showing me from the other wrong angle. Because, <laughs> so my, my upgrade is probably going to go the backwards according to your upgrade. You guys know where I'm going here. Blackberry. Now, and now it might sound like it's going backwards, and maybe it is in time, but what you're actually doing is you're actually getting an upgraded device because it has a keyboard, and you can actually type what you want to type. Doesn't that sound like, I'm going to sell you guys today. Doesn't that sound nice to be actually to say what you want to say and not have to go backwards and go, I did not mean that. I, whatever I just wrote, that was gibberish. So BlackBerry is, an, is my number nine upgrade. Here's number eight. Now, some of you grew up playing video games. Let's see some hands. Who grew up playing video games on, like, uh, let's say, Sega Genesis, regular Nintendo? All right, anybody have a regular Atari? All the way back. Okay. Now, you guys remember some of the graphics from those early video games, right? And the kids today, I know you hear this a lot, kids. The kids today don't know how easy they have it. Because back in the day, Mario looked like that. And that was cutting edge. That was like, wow, I can see a mustache. And, uh, and now look at Mario. It's like a totally different world, and my kids have it so easy. But I think the retro ones are actually better. Who's with me? Maybe the upgrade, again, is, is the other way. Maybe the old ones are better. But that's, an, that's number eight. Here's number seven, which many of us are going to be doing this season as well as we near Christmas. The old school way was shopping in person, right? And now we can shop online. We don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to go to a store. I don't have to fight a line. I don't have to drive in my car. I don't have to be that guy on Black Friday who's wrestling a DVD player from an old woman. I don't have to do that anymore. And I actually saw that happen, by the way. I could just go online and say, yes, I'd like to buy that. Please send that to my house. Thank you. And I think that's a wonderful upgrade. Anyone else? Maybe it's just guys. You like that? I love the online shopping experience. And my wife kind of likes going in person to some degree, and I don't. I don't want to fight the crowds. Send it to my door. If it's wrong, I'll send it back. And uh, there you go. There's an upgrade. Here's number six. Who likes pizza? Kevin, who am I looking at? Now, pizza is great nonetheless, right? Pizza doesn't need to be upgraded. But back a few years ago, probably I'm dating myself, 20, 30 years ago, they did upgrade pizza. They did. Stuffed crust pizza. Stuff, I don't know if you guys like stuffed crust pizza, but that was a brilliant idea. Hiding more cheese in pizza? More cheese? Who, plus, you get to the crust, what do you do with that crust? You got to dip it or something, right? So they put cheese in that crust, man. That was a game changer. Do you like stuffed crust? Yeah, but you can't eat it. 
and stuffed crust pizza is only like a half upgrade because you can only get stuffed crust pizza from like Domino's, whereas like better pizza comes from. It's worth it though. I think it was Pizza Hut. Wasn't Pizza Hut the stuffed crust person? Oh yeah, maybe. Pizza Hut, yeah. But now I think a lot of people have it. You could, you could find stuffed crust. I think that was an upgrade. I, even though I can't have cheese, I'm looking at that going, yeah, I would like that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's just crust. Um, here's number five, and some of you grew up with this as well. Number five, best upgrade. And some of these I'm showing you the upgrade. Some of these I'm showing you the the before picture. This is a before picture. Okay. Notice what you're sitting in today. Have you ever thanked your pastor? in Wyoming Valley Church for the comfortable seat you get to sit in because look what we grew up with. They're called pews, more like PUs. Um, those things were wretched to sit on. I remember sitting in those as a kid going, how am I supposed to sit in this thing for an hour, an hour and a half? But draws, you didn't really sleep well in those things, so you had to stay awake versus today you can slouch down and sit. Here's number four. Best upgrade is, guys might probably remember this. This wasn't too long ago, but it does feel long ago. Remember when if you wanted to listen to music, you didn't go on your phone, you didn't look up an app, you didn't tell Alexa to play a song, you grabbed one of your cassettes, maybe some of you remember those, or your CD off your little CD holder there from your car and you put that in and let it play 10 songs from the same band. That's how you did it. And every one of us had one of those contraptions, right, at some point. You guys remember the big wallet thing you would carry next to your, oh man, they were great. Yeah, that was dangerous, by the way. If you wanted to switch CDs, you're put a lot of lives at risk. That's right. So now we have Spotify and Pandora, and that's an upgrade, right? It just is. And uh, here's number three. Now, back in the day, if you wanted to get on the Internet, you would have to take your phone line at your home. You'd have to take the cord from your phone, plug it into your computer, which means no one can call. No one can call in. No one can call out. There were no cell phones. You are now taking up the home line, and you would have to now dial in to the internet. And do you guys ever remember that noise it used to make? Absolutely. Remember that screeching noise it would make as it took like 25 minutes to get online so that you could find a recipe for grilled cheese? Remember that? And then, what's that? And then if someone called you, you got kicked off the internet. That's right. Yeah, yeah, man, back in the day. So now that we're always online, and there's this thing called Wi-Fi, man, everybody has it so easy. That's a nice little upgrade. Here's another one. This one's very, the last two are very specific to me. Now, when I grew, when I went to Michigan, okay, I had two roommates, okay? I did. I had my wife, who I married in 2009, okay? She became my roommate, if, in a way. But I had a roommate before Janine. And for nine months, I spent time with that roommate, and that was a cat, and his name was Duke. And I love cats. Anyone else like cats? Cats are, cats are no, nobody, whoa. Okay, we got a few couple cat fans, that's good. I enjoyed my roommate, Duke. Duke was a good roommate. You know, he was fuzzy and cuddly. He left little pockets of fur for me everywhere. It was wonderful. If I shake a bag of treats, he'd come running. But let's be honest, my wife is an upgrade over that roommate, and I uh, hope she knows that. <laughs> as much as I love Duke the cat, Janine the wife was much better. She's still cuddly, and she also likes little treats sometimes. I'm tea. Boy, that sounded really bad. What's that? Sometimes, in the shower. Yes, thank you. Yes. Well, wow, I don't want to mean, demean my wife. That was I was going for the opposite there. Janine is much better than a cat. Here's number one best upgrade, okay? Now, you guys know Pastor Todd. My, my legal name is Todd Marcus Walker Sr. There is now an upgrade to that. Todd Marcus Walker Jr. Many of you know him by the name Marcus. We don't call him Todd, but his legal name is Todd Marcus Walker Jr., that little guy is, is the joy of my life. He is an upgrade over the previous Todd Marcus Walker. I will admit that. That's my top 10 best upgrades. And the one that transitions to the lesson today is, is we had two people in this, in this world that we live in, okay, that have changed humanity profoundly. The first one we looked at last week, his name is Adam. Adam changed the world profoundly. We're going to look at that again today. There's another person who has changed the world profoundly. We're going to look at him today. Scripture actually calls him the second Adam because he changed the world. And that does not demean our Lord Jesus because we will talk about what he did and how he accomplished. We are going to talk about Jesus today. If you have your Bibles, join me in Romans chapter 5 as we read verses 12 to 21. Listen to the word of God. This is Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, just as one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. For then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. What a wonderful verse. The law came in and in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But Jesus, but Jesus is the title of our lesson today. Now we've titled the sermon series, Our Journey to Jesus, Our Journey to Jesus. We're seeking to learn the foundational truths and stories from the Old Testament but not just learn the story or the narrative. We're seeking to learn how they lead us to our Lord Jesus Christ because every single one of them does. Did you know that? Charles Spurgeon, my favorite pastor, he lived in London, England in the 1800s. And he said this, he said, As all roads in England lead to London, all scriptural truths lead to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I really believe that is true. And today we're going to seek about how the fall of mankind ironically, led to our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we spoke about sin. We spoke about the devil. We spoke about the fall of man and the curse put upon this world because, because of the actions of the first people that ever lived. So much bad happens so early, right? You guys ever have one of those days you wake up and it, the bad day starts like right away? You stub your toe. There's no hot water. You just have a bad day from the get-go. Kevin, you have been there? And it, it happens so early, right? We're looking at Genesis 1-2, the creation of the world. Genesis 3, kaput. Everything bad happens in Genesis chapter 3. So much bad, so early. But how can all of that bad possibly lead to Jesus? How can it? And if it does lead to Jesus, does that mean God is okay with sin? If sin eventually leads to Jesus? These are the questions we want to seek to answer today. Now, there's three paragraphs in our passage today, okay? Now, this is a lot of text. It's very in-depth, okay? I understand that I have picked a very intense passage of Scripture today. What we are not able to do today is look at every nook and cranny of this passage, unfortunately, because it does deserve that. What we're instead going to do is we're going to summarize the three paragraphs, okay? And we're going to come to one main point at the end. So we're going to look at paragraph number one. What does that mean? Two, three, and so forth. So let's look at paragraph one. Once again, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Paul's in the middle of a discourse to the Roman church about the gospel. That's what Romans is. It's an entire discourse of the beginning to the end of the gospel message that Jesus came with. And he's basically telling the Roman Christians how we arrived at this point spiritually. How did we get here? And our lesson from last week on the fall of mankind sets us up nicely, interestingly enough, for what God wants to tell us today. For the last year and a half, we've all experienced something together, together haven't we? We've lived through a pandemic, a pandemic called COVID-19. Now, you probably have your own viewpoint on this virus and how it's being handled, and we're not going to talk about that today. But I want you to know that there are a few things about this pandemic that are real, that are true, okay? 
whether you disagree with how it's being handled or what is out there, there are, fair, there are three things that are true about what's going on right now that we can all agree on, okay? I hope we can all agree on. Number one, and we're going to get there. Number one is this is a real virus. And I know that it's a real virus because I got the virus in late July. Both my wife and I did. We tested positive, and I had pretty unpleasant symptoms. I had a really bad, feel like a really bad flu, like the worst flu I ever had. I had the virus. I tested positive. I had the virus. I had the symptoms. So even from firsthand experience, I can tell you that the coronavirus, or whatever this thing is, is real because I got it. I did not die from it, but I am hoping I never catch it again because it's unpleasant. So yes, it, there is a real virus out there circulating. Okay, number two, and this is, there's a point to this, okay? Number two is the virus spreads from one person to another fairly easily. For over a year, I did not catch the virus. Over a year. I was thinking I was in the clear. And I'm a pretty clean person by nature. And I'm also relatively germ-aware. Any germ-aware? Maybe not germ-phobia, but germ-aware. Maybe that's just a nice way I spin it. But I am germ-aware. And in spite of all of that, I eventually caught the virus because someone spread it to me. So this virus is real and it also spreads fairly easily. Number three thing that is true, this virus does kill some people. It does. Typically every virus is capable of killing some people depending upon who the person is and their level of immunability to that virus. But some people, and we'll never truly know how many, have died from this virus and are dying from COVID-19. So yes, the virus is deadly. So without any bias or without any political slant or agenda, we can say confidently there is a real virus. It spreads fairly easily to everyone around us, and it will kill some people who catch it. And this is not the point of what I'm talking about today. And we have to stop there because we don't know beyond that, okay? The opinions and the facts about this virus vary vastly depending on who you ask. But viruses are real. Viruses spread and viruses kill some people. Isn't that all true? That's all true about viruses. And if that's true, that means we're all on the same page about the coronavirus. Nicely done. But these three truths are going to set up about what we're talking about today. Because there is a pandemic still going in this world on the spiritual side. And it is so much bigger than what we're dealing with with COVID-19. So let's get back to spiritual matters because that's the only thing that I can ever be considered an expert on. Uh, Paul is reminding us today that there's a spiritual pandemic of epic proportions. And it exists in our world this very hour. And it's one that many of us have forgotten about or failed to consider in our daily lives. This spiritual pandemic has completely and drastically changed our entire world in a negative fashion. And the only cure for the spiritual pandemic is the death and the sacrifice of the Son of God. That's the only cure. Sin is the virus of all viruses. According to Romans and according to God, sin is real. It's absolutely real. You know that by now. Sin spreads easily from literally, to literally every single person in the entire world. Every person. And unlike COVID-19, every single person who catches sin is destined for eternal death. And if, I don't, if you don't know by now, I hope I don't have to tell you this, eternal death is so much worse than physical death. Isn't that true? Much better to physically die and live forever than die eternally. So let's look at this little flow chart here quickly, okay? Sin is 100% real. It has 100% infection rate. And it has 100% death rate. Did you know that about sin? Sin is absolutely devastating. It kills, it destroys, and you and I have been worried about COVID-19 for the last year and a half. This one is so much worse than COVID-19, and it's not even close. But the Apostle Paul is not worried about physical viruses. Wyoming Valley Church is not worried about COVID-19. We're not worried, okay? That is small potatoes compared to the pandemic that we're speaking about today. We're going to focus upon the greater spiritual pandemic and the much greater cure for this pandemic. Now, sin began kind of quietly. It did not begin in a lab in China. It began in a garden in God's paradise. That's where sin started. God told Adam and Eve to avoid one single tree and fruit that would kill them if they ate it. And that was it. 
Otherwise, enjoy everything I've made for you. It's all yours. Go enjoy it. Go eat it. It's all for you to enjoy. Literally thousands of fruit trees in the wonderful paradise that God created for his people. One, do not touch. One, and countless blessings to enjoy. Now, do we have a harsh God? One, do not touch, and countless blessings to enjoy. Not at all. Our God is not harsh at all. And we know the rest of the story. Pastor Mel spoke to us last week. Eve was deceived by the devil. And Eve ate from the one single tree that she was supposed to avoid. And that was bad enough. But then she gave that forbidden fruit to her husband. And Adam, too, ate from the one single tree they were supposed to avoid. And what followed was utter disaster. Because sin was now upon the world. Now, yes, the devil was already in the world. We learned that in Genesis chapter 3. So the devil was in the world. So technically, sin was already upon the world, even before the fall. But now, thanks to Adam and Eve, sin was in the bloodstream of mankind. Sin was in our bloodstream. God's chief of creation, God, the apple of God's eye, was now stained and tainted with sin. And as we mentioned, sin is 100% real. Sin has 100% infection rate. And sin has 100% death rate. And now mankind caught sin through a willful disobedience to God. This means that 100% of mankind is going to catch sin. 100% of mankind will die because of sin unless we find a cure. Now that is a pandemic of epic proportions. No one will survive unless we find the cure. Paul tells us that even though the law, the Ten Commandments, wasn't going to be handed down to the people for another 2,500 years. Did you know that? From Adam to Moses, most people estimate it was 2,500 years until God gave the Ten Commandments to his people. 2,500 years. And even though that wasn't a reality, we weren't supposed to get the law until Moses came, sin was still killing everybody it touched. Because as we're going to learn next week, mankind has enough of God's law inside of them in our hearts to know basic right from wrong. Such as knowing that murder is wrong, adultery is wrong, stealing is wrong, love and compassion is right. We know that. We know that because it's written upon our hearts. People who haven't even seen the Ten Commandments, haven't stepped one foot into church, all know that is wrong and that love is right. And sin was actually going to pick up steam once the law came. Once the Ten Commandments were given, sin was going to increase because the law was going to act like a spiritual mirror to our soul. And it was going to reveal to us how sinful we actually were. And even though the law was still a way off at the time of creation, once sin came into the world, both death, excuse me, both sin and death spread like a malignant disease upon mankind because that's what sin does. It spreads and kills everything it touches. Adam and Eve's sin, however, was unique. It was different than the general sin in this world before the Ten Commandments came. Because before the Ten Commandments were given, people could claim ignorance to the law. You ever have been on one of those roads and you don't see the speeding zone, the speeding limit, and uh, you're going what you think is the speeding limit? And maybe you've even pulled over and told a cop that. I never saw the speeding limit. And uh, you could claim ignorance to the law if you don't know the law, Correct? But Adam and Eve's sin was pure rebellion to God based upon the clear commandment that God gave them to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. That's what God said. So Adam and Eve's sin was more devastating than the general sin upon the world. And Adam's sin was even more devastating than Eve's sin. Did you know that? Because although Eve's sin was technically what brought sin into the world and into God's creation, Adam's sin had a much more far devastating impact because Adam was the leader of the human race. His sin would actually spread sin to the entire human race, thereby killing every single person ever born. Adam's sin was going to infect all of humanity. That is tragic, isn't it? One man's disobedience led to the death of countless people. Mankind was going to be condemned to eternal death for two reasons. Because of the malignancy of sin, that is number one. Sin 
infects and sin kills everything it touches. Just as orange trees make oranges, sinners make sinners. Adam and Eve had children, all sinners. Their children had children, all sinners. Meaning that sin is inevitable for every single person who's ever born. Because they start as sinners. My baby boy Thurmond is six months old going on seven months old. And he is a delight, right? To some of you. You're looking at him going, man, what a cute little baby. You guys were saying that this morning. What a cute and perfect little baby. Let me tell you this. As his parent, I love him, but he's not. Perfect human being. He is cute. Super cute. But he also has that nature that we all have of wanting what he wants and going to claw and scrape to get what he wants. He is a sinner. And I know that because seven kids, all of them are sinners. All of them, 100%. Because that's what happens. That's not the end of the story, though. Remember that. But we, number two, the, the second reason why we are condemned to eternal death is because, like Adam, God told us what is right and wrong. That's what the law did. The law said, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. So when you and I choose to sin, we cannot claim ignorance to the law. We are now rebelling against God's law with clear knowledge of what God told us not to do and what to do. And when you and I choose to do the opposite, that is the definition of evil. Now, mankind's interesting. We're funny creatures. We like to pretend that we're only less than perfect. You ever hear someone say it that way? Yes, I'm not perfect. I'm less than perfect. Everyone's less than perfect. But that's not what Scripture says. God's word says we are God-hating rebels by nature and evil by nature. That's what God's word says about mankind. We're God-hating rebels and evil by our very nature. And Adam, as we're talking about today, is actually a type or a likeness of somebody that was to come. Adam's sinfulness was going to affect us all, bringing death to us all. So Adam's choices would literally impact the entire human race. Does that sound familiar? It should, because there was coming another person whose righteous choices would also impact the entire human race. Let's go to paragraph number two. I don't know if you could see that, so you could look down at your own Bibles. Paul says this, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Amen. Sin is absolutely devastating. It's devastating. It kills everything and everyone it touches. And it makes no distinctions in regard to race, gender, status, or upbringing. Sin kills everybody. But as devastating as sin is, it's not going to define all souls for all eternity because of one simple fact. Man is not all-powerful. Man is not all-powerful. At the beginning of our passage, it sounds like Adam and Eve, or maybe even Satan himself, owns the power to destroy all of humanity with one evil act. That's kind of how the story begins. Adam and Eve make one dumb choice, and all of us suffer because of it. And it looks like Satan, in his craftiness, has a tremendous amount of power, and he does. Adam and Eve's one sinful choice was going to condemn an entire race of people. And if that is true... That's devastating, and it is true to a degree. But if Adam and Eve, under Satan's influence, has the power to utterly lay waste to God's creation for all eternity, then we could question whether God is all wise to have entrusted his creation with such power and abilities. If man's decisions can affect and affect the eternal state of billions of souls, then we're all in deep trouble. And then God seems less than man. Man was going to sin and condemn everybody, and God could only sit by and watch it happen. That's kind of how the story begins. 
And that should cause some of us to think very carefully about this. Is man in charge? Is Satan in charge? Or is God in charge? Did you ever know someone who wished you harm? Really wished you harm. And they wanted to destroy your life. They wanted to destroy every area of your life. Can you imagine if that person had the full capabilities to do whatever they want, as much as they want, to your life? What they could do with no limitations. What they could do to your body and your life if they had no limitations whatsoever. Would that be terrifying? If someone wanted to harm you and there was nothing that you could do to stop them, there was no limitations to what harm they could do, would that be terrifying? Did you know that Satan desires this every moment of the day? He desires our pure destruction and he wants every single one of us in hell for the rest of eternity. He wants to burn our lives for the rest of eternity, and yet he fails every single day, many times over. Now, he's very crafty, very powerful, and he's seen almost everything. And yet every day he fails to burn us all, but he wants to. Is not the devil incredibly powerful, crafty, and relentless in seeking our destruction? Yes, he is. And if so, then why are we not dead and in hell this very hour? And this is what Paul is getting to, to seek us to help and understand and value what he's saying to us today. Satan does not get to win. He does not get to win. The devil had a great victory over Adam and Eve. That is true. It's a victory that still ripples in our world today. But Satan does not get all souls for all eternity. And that's exactly what he wants. He wants all souls for all eternity. And the reason Satan does not get to win, and the reason death and sin is not the final chapter of this world, is because the devil is not all-powerful. He certainly desires it, but he can't accomplish it. And evil is never going to victor over God. Amen? Evil is never going to conquer God. Because there is one who is all-powerful. And there is one who is going to victor for all eternity, and his name is Jesus. He is all-powerful, and he's going to great, gain a great victory over evil someday. Listen to Paul's language in the passage we just read. He says, For if by the transgression of the one many die, that is true, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many and if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that is true. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Do you notice it? As Pastor Mel spoke to us last week about the consequences of choosing sin and the great victory Satan got over God's people, at the end of this lesson, Pastor Mel said this. He said, don't forget that Christ wins. Don't forget Christ wins. Sin does not get to write the story here today. Satan does not get to gloat and dance over God for all eternity. The transgression of Adam and Eve will affect the millions, but God's grace will affect the billions. After King David defeated the giant Goliath, Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 18. Now, there was a king upon the world in Israel. His name was King Saul. But David had just conquered the giant. Listen to the account of what happens in 1 Samuel 18 after David returns after killing the giant. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18 says, It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine Goliath that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Do you see the parallel? The devil has done a great, great harm upon this world, but he does not get the victory and will not get the victory. And King David represents our King Jesus. Satan has killed his millions. Jesus will save his billions. Now, I do not know, just like you do not know, how many people are going to be in heaven one day. But I do know this. It's going to be more than we think is possible. I'm like you guys. As I look around the world, I see the same picture you all see. I see it. Satan seems to be winning. 
That's what it looks like. I see the same picture you all see. Satan seems to have many souls, many more souls in his possession than Jesus does in his possession. That's what I see, and that's probably what you see. And that feeling that evil is multiplying and the feeling that evil is conquering is seemingly all around us, and we can't dodge it. Satan looks like he's winning. And that's how it feels. But that is exactly why we don't listen to our feelings. Or the perception of our minds. We listen to the word of God. Paul finishes his powerful lesson by stating this in paragraph chapter or number three. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Guys, if you, amen, amen that passage right there. The reality of the matter is this, okay? Satan and sin has caused a devastating blow to mankind. Devastating blow. Sin is more destructive than you and I realize. We're all talking about COVID-19. We should be talking about sin. We should be talking about the pandemic of sin. It is so much bigger and greater. It is worse than a thousand viruses, a thousand variants, all attacking us at the same time. Sin is greater. Sin is worse. If you and I could see the true effect of sin in every nook and cranny of this world, it would be too much for us to handle. It is too much evil. There's too much wickedness upon this world. It already almost is that way for me. I cannot watch the media very long before I just have to turn it off. It's so vile. And sin is eternally deadly. And this truth, although an evil truth, has actually allowed our God to shine in a way we otherwise wouldn't see him. See, sometimes when a bad hurricane or bad tornado rips through a town, you'll see this on the news. You see... The best in people come out. And the news always says that. After something tragic happens, you see the best in people come out. Those who come together and rally around one another to help each other overcome the devastation in their town. And even though darkness comes, the light eventually shines through the darkness. And the darkness is eventually defeated by the light. When sin runs rampant over the entire world and there seems to be no hope, and that is the day we are living in right now, there seems to be no hope. That is precisely when hope shows up. And that hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Let us make no mistake about it. Sin is real. Sin is devastating. It destroys everything it touches. It's 100% real. It infects 100% of the people. And it has 100% death rate. And if that's true, how can there be any hope at all? Not only that, but Paul says this. He says, God gave us the law so that the transgressions would increase. Now, that's a bad thing, guys. Okay? Transgressions increasing is not a good thing. That is more sin upon the world. Paul says, God gave us the law so that sin would increase? What? In other words, God gave us the law to make the situation even more grim, even bleaker, even more hopeless than it was before? Yes, because he had a plan of ultimate glory that would shine very, very soon. Now, do you remember the story of Lazarus? We've referenced the story a few times in the recent past. Do you remember the story of Lazarus dying? Jesus had a friend. His name was Lazarus. And at the beginning of that story, Jesus is told that his friend Lazarus is very sick and is dying. And when Jesus heard this news, he did something pretty shocking. Instead of rushing to Lazarus' side and trying to save him at the last second like a Hail Mary pass in football, Jesus decided to stay two days longer in the place where he was. Does that seem odd to anybody else? So by the time Jesus makes it to where Lazarus is, Lazarus has been good and dead for four days. It got worse. So much worse, hope is gone. Why? Why, Jesus? And Mary and Martha are basically asking Jesus that trying to be careful with their words, but basically, Jesus, why? If you would have come before he was dead, you could have saved Lazarus. We know that. But now he's in the tomb and he's been dead for four days. Why would you allow the situation to get worse by staying two days longer where you were? 
why not rush to Lazarus' side right before he died and save him? Why would God send us the law that he knew we could not obey because we were already infected by sin and we had no power to say no to sin and to obey the law? Why would he send us the law at that time? After sin had already devastated our lives and destined us to eternal condemnation. Why, God, are you cruel? And the reason for this is quite simple, yet incredibly profound. Jesus is greater than the devastation of sin. Jesus is greater than the devastation of sin. The darker things get, the brighter the light will shine. And although that seems dangerous to you and I, like playing Russian roulette with our souls, God's not worried. God's not worried. I'm going to help you understand this by painting a scenario in your mind, okay? I'm hoping this little story will help you understand what's going on here. I want you to assume with me, okay? Humor me and assume that you're going, even if you don't like sports, assume that you were going to watch a football game with your friend, okay? Or pick your favorite sport, any sport you desire. And you both like the same team. You both root for the same team, whatever team that is. Okay, and both of you are busy during the time of the game that uh, of the time that game is being played. So you decide to make a deal with your friend. You're going to record the game, and you're going to watch it later with some pizza, some stuffed crust pizza. And you make a deal. Neither of you are supposed to find out the score beforehand. Meaning, by the time you watch the game, neither of you will know the outcome of that game while you're watching it. That's the deal. But that evening on your way home from work, your phone makes a notification sound and you look down at your phone and you realize that you had your phone set to notify you when your favorite team scores. And by sheer accident, you see the final score of the game. That your team won in overtime on a last second touchdown. Or half court or bases loaded home run, whatever sport you pick. And now you feel weird. You don't know what to do. You don't want to needlessly ruin the experience of watching the game with your friend. So you decide to conceal the fact that you know the final score of the game. And not only that, but because it's your friend, you decide to use the situation to have a little fun with them. So as you get together that evening, you begin to tell them how nervous you are for this game. That you're convinced that you and your friend's favorite team is going to lose this one. Shaking your friend's confidence just to mess with them. That might seem cruel, but you know the end score. And you know that your team eventually is going to win the game and that your friend will eventually be happy. So during the entire game, you act pessimistically, as if you're convinced your team is going to lose. Every bad play for your team is the worst play that's ever happened. And every good play for the opposing team is proof that they're so much better than your team. And all your friend hears is all the pessimism coming out of your mouth. And it's so much pessimism, they begin to buy into it. And they start believing that your team is going to lose. And then the game goes into overtime, and you're, re you're really beginning to ramp things up and plant doubt into their mind by saying that your team never wins close games like this, and that you have a feeling they're going to blow this one. But deep inside, you're grinning, and you're anticipating the final play of the game because you know your team is going to win. Kevin, this sounds like something you would do, by the way. Is that why you're grinning? <laughs> so as the clock wanes, Okay, and the game looks like it's out of hand and your team is going to lose, your friend does something. Your friend turns to you and tells you to turn the game off. He doesn't want to see it because he can't take it anymore. And he doesn't want to see his team lose at the last second like they typically do. But now you feel sad for your friend. You maybe have taken it too far. And you begin to change your tune because you notice your friend's hope is wavering. So you don't want them to be sad. You don't want them to be hopeless. You want them to be filled with joy. So now you convince them to hang in there. Hang in there to the final buzzer because I think there's still hope for our team to pull this one out. And as the last second magic takes place right before your eyes, you notice your friend's excitement is at a level you've never seen it before. What looked like to be a very bleak situation is now one of full elation and full joy as the final buzzer sounds and your team wins the game. Your friend is jumping up and down and telling you they can't believe they won that game after all the doubt and all the hopelessness that was just before them. And you just sit back and enjoy your friend's happiness. What started out as a mini prank of letting doubt and, and, and hopelessness take shape in their mind is now one of the sweetest gifts you possibly ever gave your friend because you gave them the joy of last second glory and victory. 
Now, all illustrations fall short, and this one falls horrifically short, unfortunately, because we're speaking about our great God. And I want to be clear, God has not been playing a prank on any of us, okay? That is not the nature of our God. He is not doing that. But perhaps you see the spirit of what Paul is telling us. Sin seems to be winning the game. It does. It seems that way to me. And then the law was sent to make the situation seem even worse and cause us to feel even more hopeless. But Romans 5 is in your Bible too, isn't it? Is Romans 5 in your Bible as well? God does not want us to be hopeless, does he? God does not want us feeling hopeless. He does not want us to lose our joy. God is full of hope and joy. He wants us to be full of hope and joy. Therefore, he tells us today, keep going. Because God knows the final score of the game. That every single one of his son's followers are going to win along with God. And the simple reason for this should be clear to us by now. No one and nothing can defeat Jesus. Nobody. No amount of sin can overcome his grace. No amount of evil can thwart his good plan. No amount of spiritual warfare can cause Jesus to shake in his boots. He is the Lord of all creation, and he's going to win a great victory over evil. Hallelujah. And Paul today wants us to know the final score. That although sin is ahead at the moment, and the law and our ability to obey it has increased sin's lead over us, that Jesus came at just the right time, with more than enough grace to win this battle. And if we hang in there, and we keep following the Lord and his plan for us, and we strive to obey his commandments, and we stay faithful to him and to his church, then we are all going to gain a great victory one day soon. Let us read it again. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, will many be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Satan struck a blow to all mankind. Sin infected the entire world, infected every single soul who lived upon the earth. And the wages of sin is death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. But aren't you thankful there's not a period after that? The wages of sin is death. It is. It absolutely is. But Jesus. But Jesus. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death? That's not the last chapter for you. That's not the last chapter for God's people. That is not the last chapter for this world because of Jesus. And I know what you're feeling right now in this world that we live in. It looks like evil is winning. And then COVID-19 came and it seems that everything got worse. And that evil has picked up steam. And now the church is reeling, the church is backpedaling. And everyone who names the name of Jesus is actually on the losing team. That's how it seems. And Paul is saying, oh, Christian, change your perspective today. I'm going to tell you the final score. I shouldn't have to, but I'm going to. God is going to win. And you're going to win if you're on Jesus' team as well. So our application today, guys, is very straightforward. Number one, remember that Jesus wins. Remember that he wins and make absolutely certain that you are on his team for the rest of eternity by doing these three things. If you do these three things, you will be on the winning team for the rest of eternity. Number one, trust in him for salvation. There is no other. There is no greater. There is no second plan, no plan B. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you have condemnation today. If you have Jesus Christ, you have justification and salvation today. Trust in Jesus, the Savior, with your soul, and trust him alone. Number two, give him your entire life. 
It doesn't seem like a big gamble, does it, when you realize he's the victor. When you give the victor your entire life, you become the victor. Give Jesus your entire life. Don't hold anything back. Everything you hold back from Jesus Christ is a risk. Give it all to the victor. Number three, stay faithful to his church. Stay faithful to his commandments and stay faithful to his plan until the final buzzer. Because Jesus is guaranteeing to us today, I'm going to win. And I promise you. And I did win already when three days after I died, I rose from the grave. There's my proof. There's Jesus' proof that he is going to win because even death couldn't defeat our Lord Jesus. Christ and his team are going to win. Do you want to be on his team for the rest of eternity? And I hope you're shouting inwardly, yes, amen, absolutely. Trust in him. Give him your whole life. Stay faithful to his plan until the final buzzer. But Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I have to confess that I myself have wandered down the paths of doubt. I too have wondered if evil is going to win this game after all. And I'm ashamed by that, Father, because I have been reminded, just like everyone here today, that the final score is tipped heavily in the favor of our Lord Jesus. It's not even a nail-biter. It's a landslide victory. We just can't see it yet. Father, I pray for every soul in this room who may be wavering and doubting, maybe has been caused concern by what's happening around them, and even in the church, Father. I pray that we would remember we're on the winning team, that nothing can overcome our Lord Jesus. Nothing can overplan his, overcome his plan of victory. Nothing can conquer the goodness and the grace of our great God. Father, remind us of that today, and then let us stay so close to the victor. Wherever he goes, let us go. Whatever he says, let us do. Let us be very, very near him in these very weird and dark days, because if we do so, we too will win a great victory over evil. Father, help your church to remember these things. Remind us of these things often, and let us stand boldly and courageously in the face of evil, and let us conquer with the Lord, by the Lord, through the Lord, and for the Lord, for your glory alone. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.